those of you who have uh, grown up in small towns uh, probably don't need much explanation as to Jesus's reaction when he came home. I myself grew up in a relatively small town called Dickinson, Texas, about halfway between Houston and Galveston. If you were ever to drive from Galveston to Houston or the other way around, you would pass right through my small town, probably without even knowing you had been there. Um, in my small town, there was a water tower, and um, on that water tower when I was growing up, it said... Uh, Dickinson Gators. The Gators was the mascot of our high school, uh, high school football team. Um, a few years after I had graduated gone, and gone back for a visit, on the water tower, there was not only Dickinson Gators, it said, home of Andre Ware. Now, who here knows that? Okay, we got some Andre Ware fans. Um, Andre Ware was a quarterback for the Dickinson Gators. He went on to the University of Houston where he won the Heisman Trophy in 1989. Now, um, he was a, a first round uh, draft pick in the NFL, but never really got a lot of traction there. Um, I think he continues as a sports analyst. Uh, but um, for several years, uh, Ware was there on our, on our water tower, and I'll tell you, at least in small town Texas, there is no higher honor than to have your name on the water tower. Are you with me? Amen. So it is true that athletes are indeed honored in their hometown. Sometimes, even when anyone outside of the football world has forgotten who they are. But not so true of prophets. Jesus said in verse 4, of Mark chapter 6, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown among his relatives and in his own household. Why is it that athletes are honored in their hometowns, maybe especially in their hometowns, whereas prophets are not? Uh, well, prophets ask not for money or honor or even loyalty. Uh, prophets ask for that which we are least inclined to give. They ask us to believe. They ask us to have faith. The next verse has an incredible statement. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, in my book, uh, laying your hands on someone and healing them counts as a, as a mighty deed or a mighty work. But uh, what it means here is that Jesus didn't do the incredible things that he had done elsewhere. He, did, he could do no mighty work there. This is an amazing statement because it's, something, it's a statement of something that Jesus could not do. On the face of it, it seems that uh, Jesus' powers here uh, were limited. We'll come back to that in just a bit. And the next verse, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Uh, interestingly, there's only two times in the Gospels that Jesus is ever said to have marveled at anything. Uh, the, other only, the only other time was when he marveled at the faith of the Roman centurion who believed that Jesus could heal his, his servant even without seeing him, even without going into his home. And Jesus' response to that in Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So Jesus marveled at the faith of an outsider, a Gentile, who had limited contact uh, with the things of God. And he also marveled at the unbelief of his own people, those 
who he had grown up with, those who had heard about his mighty deeds and, uh, and heard the wisdom of his teaching. The people who should have had faith had incredible unbelief. Well, what is faith? Uh, Hebrews 11.1 1 describes faith this way. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In this context, we can loosely define faith as trusting and believing in God. And Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 8 tells us that faith is a gift. It's a gift of God. It's a gift through which we receive God's grace or unmerited favor. Well, if that's what faith is, what is unbelief? Well, this word that's translated unbelief in this passage is a Greek word, apostia, which literally means lack of faith. In this context, it means refusing to believe despite the evidence. Now, a wonderful example from our modern art and literature is uh, from the really great uh, Coen Brothers movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? In that movie, there's a character uh, named Everett, played by George Clooney. And uh, he and his uh, traveling companions, Delmar, Peter, and Tommy, um, are about to be hanged for having escaped prison. Everett falls on his knees and he says, Oh Lord, please look down and recognize us poor sinners. Please, Lord. I just want to see my daughters again. I've been separated from my family for so long. I know I've been guilty of pride and sharp dealing. I'm sorry I turned my back on you. Forgive me. We're helpless, Lord, for the sake of my family, for Tommy's sake, for Delmar's and Pete's. Let me see my daughters again. Lord, help us, please. Then suddenly, this wall of water crashes through the hollow that they're in and washes everyone away, including the law enforcement officers. You know, they all surface in this flood and, and are saved. Delmar says, a miracle, it was a miracle. Everett says, Delmar, don't be ignorant. I told you they was flooding this valley. Delmar says, no, that ain't it. We prayed to God and he pitied us. Everett says, well, it never fails. Again, you hayseeds are showing you want for intellect. There's a perfectly scientific explanation. Pete says, that ain't the tune you was singing back at the gallows. <laughs> Everett says, any human being will cast about in a moment of stress. No, they're flooding this valley so they can hydroelectric up the whole darn state. Yes, sir, the South is going to change. Everything's going to run on a paying basis. Out, of the, out with the spiritual mumbo-jumbo and the backward ways, we're going to see a brave new world where they hook us all up to a grid. Yes, a veritable age of reason like the one they had in France. Not a moment too soon. Not a moment too soon. An example of unbelief. Having seen the power of God in response to prayer and attributing it to something else. Refusing to believe in face of the evidence. The people of Nazareth were the same way. Jesus had grown up with them. Uh, they knew what he had done. They knew the things he was saying. What other explanation did they have? Yet, they refused to believe. Unbelief is common in our day, is it not? Phrases that should clue you in that you're about to hear some unbelief. It's just. It's just the carpenter, Mary's son. It's just a flood uh, they're just flooding the valley. Uh, here's another one. What about, you know, you know, what about his brothers and his sisters? They're here with us. You know, uh, 
what about the perfectly rational, perfectly scientific explanation? And then, but if, but if Jesus really is the Messiah, what's he doing here in Nazareth? Now, I should pause here to say there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt seeks evidence. Uh, unbelief does not respond even to evidence. Uh, a contrast can be seen with uh, the disciple Thomas. Uh, Thomas was not one of the first disciples to see Jesus alive after his resurrection, and he refused to believe until he saw with his own eyes. Once he saw Jesus, he believed. The chief priests, though, uh, when they got the report of the Roman guards about the angel coming and the stone rolling away, they didn't investigate. They didn't change their attitude towards it. Instead, they paid the guards to say that the disciples had come and stolen his body. It's unbelief, failing to, re to believe, refusing to believe, despite the evidence. Well, there is a remedy for un unbelief, fortunately. Uh, in Mark chapter 9, uh, the disciples bring to Jesus a boy with an unclean spirit. And when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into, into fire and into water to, to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus responded to the, to the cry of this father father uh, we I think all have unbelief in our hearts one level or another Jesus can help us with that when Jesus appeared after his resurrection uh, to the 11 as they were reclining at a table he he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen their unbelief was transformed into faith a faith that took them through the rest of their lives and into eternity. I love this uh, picture of, uh, of faith uh, coming from unbelief um, as an opening of the eyes in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6. This is the story of Elisha and his servant. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The springing of faith from unbelief is, is the opening of the eyes of faith. So what is the connection between God's power and human faith? We're coming back to that, to that uh, statement that Jesus could do no mighty deeds. Well, first of all, God's faithfulness does not depend on ours. Romans 3.3, 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And the answer is no. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Well, there's, again, something God cannot do. 
uh, thankful. He cannot deny himself. God is completely consistent with his own character. God's power is also not limited by our unbelief. A few weeks back, um, <clears throat> I uh, was experiencing one of the many joys of, of teleworking, um, failure to connect to the internet, right? Um, the CDC had, uh, had done a, an upgrade to their system over the weekend, and I was sure that on Monday morning, the reason why I was not able to get anything done was because of something they had done to their system. So I got the IT folks on the, on the phone, and we were going through things and changing things and checking things, and then it, to my deep embarrassment, turned out that my Wi-Fi was not working. The CD system, CDC system was just fine. It's just that I was not able to receive that. Um, the problem is not God's power. The problem with, is with our, our, our willingness or ability to receive what he has for us. Luke 18, uh, Jesus puts it this way, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The issue is not God's power, his willingness to act on our behalf. The issue is, do we have the faith to believe? God, in his sovereign will, chooses usually to manifest his power in response to our faith, in order to grow our faith, and in order to reveal his glory. Now, Jesus, in his self-emptying, as he became fully human, he limited his divine power for a time. Now, exactly how that works is somewhat of a mystery. I'm not going to try and parse that out in detail this morning. But he said that, um, that he lives to do the will of the Father, uh, so that, in a sense, he was limited uh, to do the will of the Father, which was, in this setting, not to do any mighty deeds because of their unbelief. So it's true that Jesus could do no mighty deeds, but that was due to his own limitation in his human nature because God chose not to reveal uh, his glory to people who had already rejected his son. So this passage contrasts the outcomes of belief and unbelief. The people of Nazareth missed out because of their unbelief. They missed out not only on the mighty works that Jesus might have done in their midst, but he, they also missed out on the Messiah himself. The 12 disciples, on the other hand, experienced God's power and provision as they went out in faith. They had complete dependence on God's provision as they were allowed to take no food, no money, and uh, no guaranteed shelter. Uh, Jesus gave them power, authority. The Greek word here is exousia. Uh, specifically, he gave them power to cast out demons, but he also gave them power and authority to heal the sick and to proclaim the message of repentance. Well, why did Jesus decide to take his disciples to Nazareth at the height of his popularity? These folks in Nazareth, they were a real buzzkill. Well, I don't know exactly what was in the mind of Jesus when he made that decision. Most of his ministry at that point had been along the shore of the, lake, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Nazareth is about 20, 25 miles inland. Um, perhaps uh, part of it was to get away from the crowds. Uh, 
his popularity had been escalating and pretty much anywhere he went, he was surrounded by people. Uh, perhaps he went to Nazareth to let a little bit of the air out of the balloon, so to speak. I think he may have also taken his disciples there uh, to experience the rejection and unbelief that they would later, later experience themselves as they were going out. I think this was probably an important part of their, their preparation. Not every place that they went would receive them. And having seen that there are places that would even reject Jesus himself. In a sense, they were being sent out a little bit like the Atlanta Hawks without Trey, Trey Young, you know, uh, to face the Bucks um, on their own. Um, also, I think the time was right uh, for Jesus uh, to go to his own, for them to hear him, even if he knew they would reject him. And Jesus knew this. He said a prophet is, uh, is honored anywhere except in his hometown. Uh, Jesus knew the kind of response he would get. Uh, but he had, um, he had already demonstrated his divine power over demons, over the forces of nature, and then most recently over death as he raised the daughter of, J of Jairus. Uh, word about him had spread throughout the region. There were large crowds. Um, if the people of Nazareth were ever going to believe him, it would be now at this point. And in fact, after their rejection of him here in this passage, we have no record that Jesus ever returned to Nazareth again. The Old Testament reading from the book of Ezekiel uh, that we, uh, that Paul read for us just uh, a little while ago, um, applies really well to this situation. And whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. It's important that they would hear, even if they weren't able to respond in faith. So, how can we respond to the teachings of this passage? Well, I've got three areas I'd like to highlight briefly. First we can respond by identifying our own areas of unbelief. Um, I'm sometimes surprised at myself, having seen God's goodness and mercy in so many ways that I find myself having trouble believing in his goodness and mercy in a particular situation. How do we see our lives? Uh, do we see them as a random sequence of events? By faith, we know that our lives are journeys of faith. They're not a random sequence of events, and they're not a script for us to tightly control. And they're not even just a means to secure our own happiness. By faith, we can believe that our lives are knit together by God as a personal journey of faith. More specifically, how do we see the bad things that happen to us? How do we see the things that we suffer? Do we believe that they can be used to serve God's purposes? This is what Paul was talking about in our New Testament reading from 2 Corinthians 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should, be, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, 
and I am strong. We see the same sentiment expressed in our reading from the psalm this morning. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. These things that we suffer can be used by God to teach us humility. They can be used to teach us that God's grace is sufficient, and they can be used to teach us compassion for the suffering of others. Another way that we can respond to this teaching is in how we react to the unbelief of others. And I will confess that oftentimes I've held back on my obedience to Christ because of the way other people are responding. I've been less bold in my uh, witness to the truth of the gospel. But that's not what we're called to do. Unbelief in others does not need to keep us from believing. Unbelief in others doesn't need to keep us from living a life of faith. And unbelief in others doesn't need to keep us from obeying Jesus. Uh, The disciples didn't let unbelief uh, of those they encountered keep them from doing what Jesus sent them to do. We can share the good news just like them. We can oppose evil and we can bring healing to those who are hurting, even in the face of unbelief in others. And finally, we can respond to this passage by fully experiencing the life of faith. We can choose to believe, to open our hearts and minds to what we know is true, what God has revealed to us in his word and in our journey of faith. We can receive the gift of faith, seeing what God wants to show us, receiving what God wants to give us, and being transformed into the people whom God wants us to become. And we can experience the power of God in our lives, power to share the good news, power to stand against the forces of evil, and power to bring healing to a hurting world. Abraham Maslow summed it up well, you will either step forward into growth or you'll step backward into safety. May we all in faith step forward into growth. Amen. As you're able... Please stand as we read together the words of the Nicene Creed.